welcome to the show, everybody. This is the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or may found us on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, including the Harbinger Media Network. Lauren and I were in Ottawa last week with a bunch of progress folks, and so you can check out some of the cool stuff we did there uh, over at Harbinger Presents, which is another podcast that talks about that. But I am here, special episode Two interviews, back-to-back, Ali Rougeau, Climate and Energy Program Manager at Environmental Defense to talk about the horrendous ongoing spill in Alberta. And then in the second half of the show, we have Hadrian Mertens-Kirkwood, who's a senior researcher at the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, talking about the Sustainable Jobs Act. If anyone knows about this act, it is it is Hadrian. But some breaking news this week has been happening in regards to this oil spill in Alberta. Ali, can you just give us a background as to what has got us, say, to Monday? So I think I should start with what are the oil sands tailings ponds? Because what we're going to be talking about today is the fact that Imperial Oil's tailings ponds have been leaking a bunch of toxic fluids into the environment, onto lands and waterways uh, up in northern Alberta. Um, but if you uh, aren't living in, in northern Alberta, you might not really think about what tailings ponds are or how oil gets produced in the oil sands. So I'll try to recap it for us. When you produce oil in the oil sands, you actually have to use a lot of fresh water. The oil doesn't just come out of the sands magically as it separates. It actually goes through a lot of different processes where a lot of fresh water um, or, or recycled water um, gets used, put, gets a bunch of different chemicals added. It goes through mechanical processes, chemical processes to actually separate the oil from the sands. Um, and you're left over with a lot of wastewater. This, this process ends up with a lot, a lot of liters of wastewater. Um, and, you know, there was a time where we estimated that for every barrel of oil produced up there, you'd get, you know, between three or four barrels of wastewater. So you can imagine the volumes that leads to. Now, this wastewater is very toxic uh, because of the fact that it's not just sands it keeps in there. It keeps a lot of heavy metals. We're talking about arsenic, mercury. It, talks, it keeps some of the hydrocarbons. It keeps some of the leftover bitumen. Um, so basically what you have is this um, yogurt-like mixture um, of highly toxic um, content um, that the industry for now has been storing in massive open pits. And I really can't find a better way to describe them than massive open pits. They're, they're nothing like, you know, ponds that you would think about. They're just holes in the ground where you put all this toxic mix and they stay open air and they've been growing. And to give you an idea of the size, we placed um, all the, the ponds that exist up there over the, the map of Toronto and it would fill everything that we know as, as Toronto up until, you know, the end of the subway lines on all sides, if you put them all together. It covers Vancouver two and a half times over. So these are massive, these are visible from space and that's what we're dealing with. Um, as the background. Now, what's been happening is that Imperial Oil's ponds have been leaking actually since May. And Imperial has known this uh, since May. It detected some, some ground uh, tainted water um, on some parts of its uh, land. And it started investigating and pretty rapidly figured out it must be coming from tailings ponds because it has a bunch of arsenic and other toxic stuff in there. 
However, we didn't know back in May that that was happening. Otherwise, you and I would have been talking in May about it. It took nine months. And actually, it took another massive spill of 5.3 additional million liters um, for the news to actually make it public. And it only make it, made it public because one of Alberta's regulators, called the Alberta Energy Regulator, Finally, after sending a lot of warnings behind closed door to the industry, after my nine months said, okay, we should make this public because the, the company is just not cleaning it up and it's not stopping this bill. And so that's basically how we got up until, you know, maybe actually two weeks ago is all of a sudden we discovered there's been this massive leak. It's been ongoing. And, you know, first the news broke up about this bill. It was very terrible. And then rapidly after it, the news was that the indigenous nations that live downstream, and there are many that live downstream, had also not been told about this bill for nine months. And while it's outrageous for the public not to know about massive environmental disasters, it's really, it's really, really um, devastating to imagine that communities that you know live off the land, hunt and fish and gather in that territory were not told that there was really toxic fluids making it onto that very territory. And so that's where we were about a, a two weeks ago. And that is unconscionable. The level of environmental racism baked into the idea that you can poison people's food supply and water supply and not tell them for nine months. If we lived in a society that treated corporate malfeasance as criminal, which we basically don't, you, if you poison one person, that's a crime. You're going to go to jail. If you poison a community of people, for some reason, that's an accident that you can just be like, oops, sorry, I didn't tell you. I mean, it just goes to show you exactly how we've created a criminalization system that is like criminalizes individual action while allowing for the dramatically more harmful corporate action to sort of go unchecked. Totally. I mean, it's it's exactly that. It's environmental racism. It's it's this this world in which we essentially let what happened there is we let the industry decide when does a disaster meet the threshold necessary to inform the community. And that shouldn't be the case, because what happened in those nine months is that Imperial Oil, which, by the way, is majority owned by Exxon. Um, we should make sure we attach the name to folks that have already polluted many other parts of our lives. Um, Imperial Oil warned the Alberta Energy Regulator early on. They didn't warn the Indigenous nations, despite having other unrelated conversations with these nations on other projects and on other things. So they were in conversation. They know how to reach them. You know, it's not like they couldn't find the phone number of the chief. They, they, they've met with him in person in, in between those nine months and didn't mention the spill. Um, and the Alberta Energy Regulator felt that it was the operator's um, responsibility to notify the nations and 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 felt that it wasn't itself. And so we have a moment where everybody's feeling like it's not their responsibility. And we have um, private companies that decide what the threshold for safety or not safety or what an incident is. And, and that's a very big problem is that we, and that's a problem of the, the oil sands in general is um, the companies are given a lot of responsibility for what is uh, environmentally friendly or not. These companies are the same ones that decide how much tailings volume is too much tailings volume. So they set their own targets for, for tailings reductions every year. They send their they they also are the ones that design their own cleanup plans for when they'll end up operations. All of that is industry set, and then the Alberta regulator just has to approve it, basically. Um, so yeah, I think you put it to a right problem there. 
it's like one of those things where like at this point I should never be surprised by the level of capture that are so many of our industries have of by the industry they're supposed to regulate, but it still is surprising. It really, every time, every time I hear about it, I'm surprised again. Um, but that was sort of up until the last couple of weeks and then it got worse in the, more recently. So can you get us up to speed to now? Exactly. So thankfully the chief of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, which is one of the nations that's downstream, um, so more north compared to the tar sands, but it's downstream in terms of where the river flows. Um, they came out with a press release and a press statement saying, yeah, we didn't know either. And so, you know, because they were seeing this public outrage about how did we not know? And and um, the federal government also didn't know about the leak. Um, and there's a lot of federal laws that, that should be involved. But so they came out and said they didn't know and then Miccosukee Cree First Nation, another First Nation downstream said we didn't know either. And so we had a lot of these, these folks downstream that kind of started talking about it. And that's really when the story, I guess, hit the news in a, in a much larger way than the, than the initial spill, because we got to understand that, um, well, the nations, first of all, had to tell all their members, any of the game that you harvested over the last um, nine months, and well, and especially, you know, they especially during the spring and during the summer um, that you froze to consume throughout the, the year, please wait, we're going to have to test it all um, because we don't know. And then, you know, the entire municipality of Wood Buffalo, which is this entire area around said, we're going to shut off the income of their, their water reservoir from the, the main river because we need a test. We need to figure out whether there's any contaminants. And so, you know, first this, this, this reaction and I, maybe we forget, especially if we live in, in the GTA where, uh, we take for granted that our water is safely monitored before we get to to drink it. Uh, but I, I felt so much pain for the families that had to have that conversation at night of like, what did we eat? How much have we eaten? What's already in our bodies? I think there's just huge amount of pain and stress that was there. Um, and what continued to unravel after was just the extent of the of the lack of governance that happened. So uh, we had the Alberta government, uh, the Alberta premier say, um, you know, well, this is just an issue of, of one operator that had a mistake. And so really not trying to implicate all the others and really not trying to implicate themselves. Um, we had the, the federal government that informed us that they didn't know um, about it. And um, I think most recently, two days ago, what I think even more shifted things is that while for, for the last few weeks, Alberta and its Alberta energy regulator and Imperial had said, don't worry, there is no impact on wildlife. And they kept repeating that message, no impact on wildlife, no impact on wildlife. It hasn't reached any uh, waterways that would eventually end up in the communities. Um, and every, you know, every person said, how can you say that so early? Like, People just got started on testing because you didn't tell us for nine months. How could we just claim no impact on wildlife? And sure enough, after three days of the federal government sending their officers to test, they said, guess what? We think it reached water bodies that have fish. And so there's there, there, there's some reasons they said it's very likely that there was impact on fish. And so, yeah, that created this next level of not only implications for the communities, but legal implications. Because what we do have, unfortunately, we don't have strong regulations protecting human health when it comes to these types of poisoning. And that's really shameful. And we should be really worried about that. But somehow we have a really strong regulation protecting fish. We have a Fisheries Act in Canada. And so it might be the Fisheries Act that ends up being Imperial Oil's you know, I don't think we can call it a downfall given where we're at, but at least uh, it, it might put a bit of a thorn in Imperial Oil's next few weeks um, because it's for protecting fish. 
Yeah, I mean, that always sticks out to me from my memory of of my environmental law class in university, where basically it was like, you don't understand how important fish are in Canadian politics. Like mm -hmm. the moment that fish are involved, it's the feds and that totally changes the dynamic. And so like the uh, looking for fish is for some reason, like a super important thing that it happens all across this country to improve environmental regulation. Mm -hmm. And like that should sort of go to like point out the failures of other regulations, you know, like the fact yeah. that the only way to get action is to go looking for fish should teach us something about how we should be changing our regulations. And yet yeah. we are stuck in this moment where like fish and fish, the Fisheries Act and the fact that fisheries are specifically national compared to how everything else is provincial really does change the rules. On that subject, though, it does sort of sound like this is like a catastrophic failure of regulation on all fronts. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, what has the how has the pressure been? How has the response been from the regulator? You got a bit of that already, but can you sort of dive into that a little bit more of like, like, what are we seeing from the Alberta regulators or the other regulators supposed to be responsible for this in response to sort of their pretty clear failure on every metric? We've seen, you know high level apologies, but the apologies were about failing to communicate properly. And I think that really shows again, um, lacking the understanding that what they should be apologizing for is, is authorizing uh, such a big threat to communities. Again, I mean, the, the apology is not on the failure to communicate, although that must be part of it. It's really the apology um, of failing to keep the tailing safe in the first place, because we can't just treat this as one bad leak it was entirely preventable. I mean, the tailings have grown. They've grown 300% since the year 2000, right? And, and so that massive amount of growth means that um, there's just a lot we, we don't know. Um, and I should say, I should have started with that, tailings actually are always leaking because they are not lined. They are not lined like your swimming pool would be to make sure the water doesn't seep. They are, they are built into, um, into the dirt that's surrounding the area where they're mined. And so, you know, because it's it's thicker, it doesn't leak as fast as your swimming pool would, but it still leaks. And so there's ongoing seepage of tailings into the groundwater all the time. And that's well documented. Um, but because it's been in the groundwater, it's been really hard to find illegal uh, avenues to um, stop that. However, um, you know, in this case, because it reached the environment and the surface water, that's why I guess there's larger implications. But I should say, I wanted to preface with the fact that there's existing leaks to say, you know, there's a lot of issues before this, and there's also a lot of toxins that have already accumulated in the water around the area. And so we, we have to be treating this as part of a bigger issue. Um, the other thing is that the Alberta Energy Regulator, what they haven't done is committing to more transparency than they currently have. For example, Imperial said, we submitted our cleanup plan for this week. And we have to take their word for it is what's happening, right? Um, and so I'm in, in full admiration of the nations who said, not this time, and they requested access to the site and they're sending their own monitoring teams because the trust has been fully broken and they're absolutely right to assert that right. Um, it is on their territories, it is on their lands, and um, I hope they get that right for every facility, Imperial, but also Suncor and Syncrude and all the others. They should have the right to go and monitor and check what's happening every single day if they want to. How can you stare down a set of people who have been directly poisoned for the last nine months and say, no, trust us now, 
Um, so before I want to get to a question of sort of like what people can sort of, you know, try to do to sort of push for change. But before I get there, I want to talk one last question about sort of, you referenced it a bit, but I think it's super important to note, which is that like these tailing ponds are A, everywhere, B, don't really seem to have a lot of way to clean them up. And C, most people think they're kind of poisoning everyone all the time. To my understanding, like the spills are obviously more leak, but there's like sort of this understanding and this belief that like it, no matter what, having this amount of toxic in, in your environment is 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 pretty bad from the jump. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that and sort of the ways that these tailing ponds are in some way, you know, like we can get to like get into carbon neutral, but slowly still never having never ending tailing ponds growth is not a sustainable solution, right? Like we can't CCUS our way out of tailing ponds to my understanding. Totally. And so, yeah, can you talk a little bit more about tailings ponds specifically? Yeah, I think it's a good reminder. And there's that nuance where it's it's true that the the, the ponds are, and I and I hate calling them ponds. And if, if when I'm uh, speaking to someone in person, I, I put quotation marks with my hands to say they're not ponds, but because we want people to know which what we're referring to, we use the term industry uses, but these massive pits really are constantly posing a threat. And they they do that because, um, you know, we get migratory birds and amazing um, different types of, of birds and fish and, and wildlife that's constantly around them. And there's a lot of accidents with them. There is, you know, a very infamous incident where over a thousand, it might've been a thousand four hundred ducks uh, died on a syncrude pond uh, because they landed on it, mistaking it for an actual lake or an actual pond. Um, and those things happen quite often. That was the one because it was so large that made the media. But in talking to um, some of the folks that actually live downstream and nearby, they say it happens. I also spoke to this um, elder um, Jean Lomcourt, um, who is Dene, who's in Fort Mackay nearby. Um, and she said, you know, she smells the smell of the pond every day and it pollutes. She's talking about how it pollutes her lungs every day and she feels it because she smells it in. And she told me something that I thought was awful was that while everybody else looks forward to the summer in Canada, um, she doesn't because in the summer there's more evaporation from the ponds and that means the stench is going to be much worse. And so things like that, knowing that, you know, they're living with toxicity and and I hope um, one day they're able to come on the show and, and talk about it themselves because it's really their story to tell but so there's that ongoing toxicity um, and I think you're right industry hasn't proposed a good way to clean them up and industry also hasn't put aside the money to clean it up and so those are two things we need to keep in mind first of all we need to have a proof that the the area is going to be brought back to a use that isn't just okay for industry to call it reclaim. That's okay for the indigenous nations to say, yes, this is the way uh, the land needs to be for us to use it for traditional practices. And that should be the standard. And that, that's, that's not currently the standard. The other one is there's been a lot of estimates about how much it would cost to clean up the ponds. It's all in billions. The lowest ones you can find are about, you know, 30, 40 billion, which is a lot of money. Um, the largest one you can find is 130 billion. That was an internal document from the AAR that leaked, the Alberta Energy Regulator that leaked. Um, and so all of that to say, if companies find a way, as they have in the past with other liabilities, um, to get away from this and to pack up their bags once they're done with the operations before they pay for the cleanup, it's you and I that are paying for it. And so... Um, I hope you're moved by the environmental racism, but but 
on top of it, we should be appalled by the fact that you and I might end up paying some or most of that really, really hefty bill. Yeah, the constant ability for public, uh, what private profit and public uh, expense is amazing in in all our Western nations. Um, so okay, last uh, last question is really just you know, this is an ongoing issue. I'm, there's people that need help, I'm sure, right now, and sort of also an ongoing push to improve regulation. How can folks you know get involved or support the work that's going on? I work closely with an organization that's called Keepers of the Water. Um, it's not the organization I work for, but it, uh, we're, we're partners on this campaign and they're an indigenous led uh, water protection organization that's based in Treaty 8. So in this northern part of Alberta. And I encourage folks to go and, and look at their work. And if you can send resources their way, donate or, or encourage them um, because they've been doing the work of bringing a lot of this information to light, um, to connecting us to the communities to uh, and to really keep everybody's attention on it when larger environmental groups maybe moved away from, from oil sands campaigning for a few years, right? Um, the other thing I'll mention, once folks have checked out Keepers of the Water is um, that environmental defense does have an action letter um, targeting uh, the federal minister, hoping that um, he's able to utilize the powers that the federal government does have. It doesn't have all the power in this case, but it has some and hoping that they will utilize the ones they do have um, to put in place more securities and to actually accelerate the, the cleanup. Um, well, thank you so much, uh, Ali Wajou, the Climate and Energy Program Manager with Environmental, De and with Environmental Defense. Thanks so much. And then we will return with Hadrian Mertens-Kirkwood with the CCPA to talk about the Sustainable Jobs Act. Welcome back to The Green Majority. I am very excited to welcome Hadrian Mertens-Kirkwood, a senior researcher at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Recently, the Canadian government came out and pitched the Sustainable Jobs Plan, or at least explained what they were thinking about it. And we really wanted to get someone who really understood the, both the background of how we got here and the plan itself to sort of give people a good understanding. So to set the stage, how do we get here? And can you give us a brief history of the government's promises on the quote unquote just transition? Sure. Yeah. So the, the idea of a just transition has been has really been picking up steam in the last few years. And it's been really in the news in the last few months because of this kind of battle between the government of Alberta and the federal government about, you know, what does just transition mean? We're going to destroy three million jobs. The, the short answer is no. But there's a longer history here. And, and just transition as an idea is, is actually quite old. It came out of the, the labor movement in the 90s. And it was all about how do we protect workers or ensure fairness for workers if they're affected by environmental policy. And originally, it wasn't even really about climate stuff. It was like, if you put in place like a chemical regulation and the chemical plant shuts down, what happens to the workers? So just transition has this kind of long history. And it really picked up steam after the Paris Agreement, because of, again, a lot of the work of the labor movement, organized labor movement internationally, to get just transition recognized in the Paris Agreement. And after that, uh, other gov governments started paying attention. So in Canada, we had uh, Alberta start talking about a just transition. The federal government started talking about a just transition. All of this was about how do we you know, ensure fairness for workers, especially coal workers, has always been the focus in Canada. 
as we you know move towards a cleaner economy. So that's the kind of big picture context. But in terms of the specific plan, this is a lot of largely a response to the Liberals' promise in 2019 to bring in a just transition act, which got a lot of people like me excited. It was like, well, we're going to get like real legislation that that puts workers and communities first in this transition to a cleaner economy, and that was good. We need to. Uh, and then it took kind of four years. We still don't have it, by the way, the legislation. But we did finally get the sustainable jobs plan. And the sustainable jobs plan is a plan. It's not a really policy itself, but it kind of outlines the government's thinking around, you know, how do we make this just transition thing a reality? Now, they don't call it just transition anymore. We could get into that maybe in a second. But the government has laid out for the first time in one place a single document that says, here's how we think about the importance of, of workers in the clean economy. Here's how we're going to like collaborate with workers and the private sector to make sure there are good green jobs moving forward. And one piece of that plan is legislation. So that's that the Just Transition Act we've been waiting for for years. It does finally seem like we're going to get something like that probably later this year. So that's kind of at a high level, the kind of history of how we got here. Amazing. That's great. Thank you so much. Because I does I do think all of that context does inform, I think, both how we should think about this plan and also what we might wish this plan was. And we right. can get to that in a second. And and I, I like how you just did reference the fact that yeah, they've changed the name. It's no longer a just transition plan because people are mad about that language, which to me, this is my own take. I think no matter what they called it at first. They were going to have to change the name. It's sort of like Biden's, you know, build back better at the last second. They had to, to pass it. They had decided to give it some new name, Inflation Reduction Act. And I sort of feel like this is roughly the same. Like any name you had for a while was going to get attacked by the by the right. And so and so like the switch a little bit is an expectation I sort of had. But at the same time, and as we get into a little bit, the change is also important in terms of the fact that what it looks like, from my understanding, there's a little less transition in this plan than we might like. There's maybe some sustainable jobs, but the transition part of it does seem to be a little bit wonkier. And so with that, um, what does the sustainable jobs plan actually do? Well, it doesn't do anything. It's a, it's a plan. It's kind of a description of, of what the government is thinking. And the kind of meat of the plan is this 10-point action plan to ensure, again, sustainable. There's a lot of kind of kind of vague, good-sounding stuff in here, but they've got 10 action points. That's the real meat of the plan. And none of them are brand new. So there's stuff in here, like one of the points is about these regional energy and resource tables. And it's a big part of the plan. It also was introduced last year. We got this new sustainable job secretariat. Sounds new, but was already budgeted for last year. So et cetera, et cetera. So there's like all the 10 points Nothing is brand new. It's just the first time it's all been put together. But there's kind of a few kind of categories of points. Like I won't go through every single one of them in detail, but there's a couple points that are like governance issues. So, you know, who oversees the agenda? So they create a sustainable job secretariat. They create a sustainable jobs partnership council, which is a different body. But both of those are about kind of engaging with stakeholders. And that's fantastic. So it's certainly something that like the labor and social justice movements have been calling for is like, you need to give people, workers, communities a seat at the table when we talk about transition. And that's what these things do. Now, as, as always, when it comes to, I mean, governments in general, but this federal government in particular, a consultation is not the same thing as actually listening to people. They're very good at, at consulting with people and not always listening. But 
hopefully these two new bodies actually do give a real voice to the workers and communities who are affected by transition. So that's that's a good thing. There's a few things around actual like supporting jobs. Um, not a lot. Uh, and it's, and maybe we can talk about why it's probably in, insufficient. But, you know, there's money that goes there's going right to labor unions to have skilled trades programs. There's money for youth jobs. So they create 70,000 new summer placements that are going to have a focus in terms of a green careers for young people. I mean, that sounds good. It's not the same as like actual apprenticeships or like public education, but it's a start, right? It's a start. And then there's a, and then there's a few points around what I would call industrial policy. They don't really use that term here, but how do we build a green economy? And that's like a super important part of just transition because one of my as someone who's worked a lot on the idea of a just transition and advocated for it, one of my biggest concerns historically has been all this focus on like, how do we transition out of fossil fuels? You know, how do we give all these workers parachutes so that they're not like, you know, dropped off a cliff here, but then there's no, what comes next. So it's like, sure, you can give a worker a year of income support. You can train them for a new job. And then if there's no job in their community, what happens, right? Nothing. So you need this proactive investment part. You need alternative industries. And, and the, this new sustainable jobs plan recognizes that. The problem is basically all of their industrial policy, such as it is, is basically how do we attract the private sector to invest in the public good? <laughs> and I'm skeptical of that. Uh, we don't have a great track record of that in Canada or in kind of sort of capitalism more broadly of just, you know, out of the goodness of their hearts, shareholders making public interest decisions. Doesn't mean there's no role for the private sector, obviously, but I would like to see much stronger federal leadership in terms of actually, you know, economic diversification. So that's just, at a, again, a bit of a high level, but that's the general thrust of this plan is you've got the, the governance piece, the, the, the stakeholder piece, you've got a, a training piece, a job focused thing. And then the third bit is the industrial policy piece, which I think is quite weak. Right. And so just so I can try to repeat it back to ensure I understand to potentially help others focus as well. One thing that uh, I picked up from your uh, your article in the Monitor was that there's also not a bunch of new things here. This is more of a taking a bunch of stuff that they've said they would do previously and sort of packaging it all as, as one thing and sort of taking a bunch of disparate ideas and being like, no, here is how we imagine this all working and then creating sort of a secretariat and a couple other people to sort of monitor and maintain this system. Is that a roughly correct? That's right. Unlike for example, if they had like tabled draft legislation, like that would be a real piece of policy, like a legal text that we could dive into. And, and that is not what this is. Uh, it is just kind of summarizing what their plan is. But I don't think that's, you know, inherently a bad thing. It's important to have these kind of overarching strategies. And especially because, you know, economic transition, climate transitions are so complicated, like they involve, especially for the government, they involve like half a dozen departments. To even get all these ministers to the table to come up with kind of one cohesive agenda is is very valuable in itself. But, you know, as always, it's going to be the implementation that matters. Right, for sure. And if I, if I ask you one other quick question, just because it's something that, again, because you sort of are you live in this world, it's a feeling I have had about this liberal government is that they've been relatively good at building up sort of the frameworks for theoretical action. You know, we have a carbon tax now, but that is too weak. And, and, we, and we have all these other sort of frameworks that exist that if you decided to take real action would be necessary to build. But currently, they sort of all exist in an unutilized to their maximum potential state. And it sort of feels like this is yet another 
example of like, they are building government capacity to theoretically in the future do a big thing. But what currently exists here is not going to get the job done. Well, exactly. And this is, that is exactly this government's approach. And it also makes it very hard to kind of assess a lot of the, the federal government's climate policy because they, they do everything right. You know, they check all the boxes for the most part. You know, we've got regulations in all the right places. They use the right words when they talk about things like fossil fuels. And they are also investing public money in all the places where we would suggest they invest public money. So, you know, on the face of it, this government is doing a very good job on climate. And it's true that they're doing a lot better job than any previous federal government. And the Sustainable Jobs Act is another one like that. It's like, again, it checks all the boxes, like all the labor and social justice advocates who wanted a just transition plan. Like we got it. So that all sounds really good, right? The, the problem, and this is what's so, so hard to talk about, is, is scale. So when they say, you know, we're going to invest in this, this union training program, it's going to train whatever, they don't have to put a number in, in, the, in the document, but we're looking at like a few thousand, maybe 10,000 workers. And that sounds good. And we need to do that. The problem is like the skill shortages we're looking at are in the kind of hundreds of thousands. So it's just an order of magnitude too small. And we see that with public investment all the time. We published a report recently that estimates federal government spending like, you know, around $10 billion a year on climate action. Sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. But by the federal government's own estimate, by their own estimate is that we need 60 to $100 billion of additional investment in climate action. So again, by the federal government's own estimate, they're, they're spending an order of magnitude too little on climate action. And, and that's like the real challenge with this government. They're doing, they're, as you say, setting up all the right frameworks. They have the, the kind of correct agenda with the big exception of fossil fuels, which maybe we should get into. That's, that's a very important exception. But again, it's a scale issue. It's just we're not um, ambitious enough or talking big enough on, on these things. Yeah, cool. That's, that's useful to know that that is sort of an overarching feeling. And so yeah, let's get into that. Let's get into a little bit of both the highlights and I'd say the lowlights. You mentioned the, the fossil fuels being probably a lowlight here. Um, but what would you say would be the, sort of the biggest strengths of this proposal and sort of the biggest limitations of this proposal? So the biggest strengths are definitely around the um, the kind of general framing and governance stuff, which I know sounds like very esoteric and it's it's removed from kind of helping workers and, and communities on the ground. But like having this secretariat, the body that's going to actually oversee the transition agenda, super important. The way they talk about uh, the importance of like of decent, well-paying jobs throughout is really important. Um so just the kind of general focus on like, we're going to make this transition happen and we're going to do it with workers front and center is, is fantastic. And it's, again, it's not just the labor movement who's been calling for that because even for kind of the social justice movements, putting people first in climate policy is so important. Um, so that, that to me is the greatest strength and they really do get a lot of things right there. The biggest weakness is what's, n is, is not actually even in the plan. And again, that's the, the part, part around fossil fuels. Um, because this is like the biggest challenge for Canada economically, of course, is like, how do we get fossil fuels out of the economy? And we've we've got an economic agenda, it seems, that on the one hand is like, we're going to be, you know, net zero by 2050, where Canada's this climate leader, we're going to have this big green economy. And also, we're going to be the last fossil fuel producer standing. Like, we're going to be exporting oil when no one else is exporting oil. We're going to be the, the, the last and best producer of fossil fuels. And our federal government and our provincial governments like, hold both those views at the same time. 
And we see a lot of that in this plan. And there's, I, I do note that there's been a bit of a shift rhetorically, I've noticed, um, not just within this plan, within the government more broadly, and also with, um, within industry about we're not going to be producing fossil fuels, but we will be producing oil and gas products forever. You know, you know, maybe it's not like gasoline for your car, but we're going to be making petrochemicals, you know, blue hydrogen, carbon fiber, plastics, whatever. And there are a few problems with that assumption. But but the bottom line is it's like we can just keep not only keep producing as much oil and gas as before, but we can actually expand oil and gas production in a kind of climate conscious way, which is a, it is as much of an oxymoron as it sounds like. But you, you see that language in this plan, too, around you know, the transition isn't even that big a deal because all these oil and gas workers can keep doing oil and gas production. That's that's kind of how the government is hoping to make it happen. Yeah, which really doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and it, I, I'm, I'm struck a little bit by one of the fears I had for this kind of legislation or for the direction that I figured the uh, the federal government would go was would be that it would take a very narrow approach to a just transition. In that I sort of imagined a version where they zeroed in on oil workers exclusively, created sort of a trajectory for oil workers uh, to to move away from from this and into you know other other sectors, but sort of ignored the the broader th thinking of who else might be impacted in terms of uh, you know a just transition. What other types of workers and people and 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 also as you mentioned where are these workers going right like the idea that everyone who's being impacted by the by this uh by say the transition of oil the oil economy could go into say a nether engineering role and that there's no need for expanding so things like the caring economy and other things like that strikes me as a as a big miss you know, like it feels like we're still tweaking at the edges of a problem that is so central to the Canadian reality um, that you would then imagine, oh, then do we need like 15 different just transition acts? You know, one for one for oil. But then what about for natural gas? What about for fracking? What about for the logging industry? You know, there is so much more. And, and or what about for just people who are currently trapped in high carbon lifestyles because they live in the deep suburbs and have to drive everywhere? You know, like all of these people theoretically need to be considered in a Just Transition Act. And this act strikes me as something being, I mean, it's not even in transition, as you mentioned. They're, they're, they're at this point, they're just basically trying to create a bunch of jobs in other industries and then hope people go there, really, or help people go there, but without really any intention to even reduce the number of people working in the field itself. Yeah. And it's, it is very ironic. As you point out, I think the biggest, I also had this fear that it was going to be just so narrowly focused on oil and gas workers, because that's been kind of the problem with Canada's coal transition is we did put in place at the provincial and federal level support for coal workers that kind of excluded everyone else in their communities. So it's like, if you were a laid off coal worker, you could get, you know, a big income top up, you could get, I think it was $12,000 tuition credit for retraining. And you even got, I think a $5,000 relocation credit. So, you know, you lose your job in the coal plant, but the government's going to pay for you to get retrained, pay for you to move somewhere else. They're good for you. <laughs> but if you made lunch for that coal worker, you know, you also lose your job and you get zero support. So we had that was a big concern that they were going to reproduce that model with the oil and gas sector. And so they were going to support these generally very highly paid, you know, Canadian born white men exclusively. You know, again, those workers deserve support as much as anyone else, but not exclusively. So that was a fear we had. 
And then in practice, actually, the opposite is true because they're talking about there is no transition in oil and gas, really. They don't even talk about income support or retraining, really, or any of that stuff in the context of the fossil fuel economy. So it, it was kind of a very surprising omission. Um, so on that point, to the plan's credit, they do talk a lot about, like, how do we diversify the clean economy? How do we make sure these new jobs are being created everywhere, you know, in every part of the country? that they're accessible to, you know, people from historically marginalized groups that often don't benefit from kind of investments in uh, green energy and so on. So they get kind of the language right. But the, the, the plan itself is a bit weak. So and this is what you were just getting at the end of that question is like, so where do the new jobs come from? And the plan is basically like, well, we'll provide subsidies to the private sector and hope that they create new jobs for people to go into. Like that's, it's it is really uh, it's a very hands off market based approach, and and yet uh, this government seems kind of convinced that it'll work. You know that as long as we just provide the right incentives, the the private sector will create all the good jobs we need. And of course, that's not what the market is good at. The market is good at some things, good at creating economic value, <laughs> a financial value, but it's not good at creating jobs. That's not the goal of the of the market. So you know we need the government to be thinking a bit more uh, hands on. Right. And that's a great actually segue to, to this question, because I know that the CCPA has done some work and actually literally put together a sort of framework for what a Just Transition Act should have uh, or should be. And so I'm curious if you can talk about where the rubber hits the road in terms of how does this plan stack up with that research? Yeah, sure. And I mean, a lot of this is stuff we've already kind of covered, but just quickly, like a big part for us is, you know, recognizing rights, putting workers, communities front and center. And the plan does that. And that's great. I mentioned that as a strength earlier. Uh, a second big thing that's important is, is a participation of affected workers and communities. And again, we're really happy with what we've seen in this plan, like the, the uh, Sustainable Jobs Partnership Council, like there's going to be a lot of acronyms that come out of this thing. But <laughs> this advisory council is good. Um, it builds on the Just Transition Task Force that we had a few years ago, and that was did a very did a lot of great work, and then its mandate expired, and we, we really need something like that. So, yeah, this this kind of getting workers to the table, getting communities to the table, getting industry to the table too, um, and having everyone talk and and you know work through transition. That's great. The plan does a good job of that. On the social safety net, there's nothing in there, and this is what I was just talking about with the like income support for for displaced workers. Um, there's really very little in the plan on that on that front, they basically say like, well, we have employment insurance and that's good enough. And <laughs> I mean, anyone, employment insurance is, is great that we have it in Canada. It's, it's good in some ways. It has other limitations. But for hard hit regions where kind of everyone is losing their jobs at once, yeah, is not enough, right? You need, you need economic alternatives. And so that, that, that brings me to the next point, which is the creating new economic opportunities piece. And that's where one of in, besides kind of the fossil fuel issue we talked about earlier, this to me is the other biggest, big weakness of the plan. It's just the, the kind of expectation that the private sector is going to solve the job creation problem. And I just don't see that happening, especially uh, in a regional context. So this is a big focus for us is saying like, if a, if a coal community, you know, say like Estevan, Saskatchewan, or, you know, these, these you know, Fort, Fort McMurray is, is going to be the biggest <laughs> the biggest challenge, of course. But it's like, what? how can we invest in those communities specifically to create good new jobs? Instead of saying like, okay, all of you coal towns, which are mostly rural, you lose your coal industry. And then we're going to create a whole bunch of like clean tech jobs in Calgary. 
like that doesn't really solve their problems, right? Like that the maybe even if there is like a net job gain, um, net economic gain from that transition, it doesn't actually help those communities. So we've been really advocating for targeted investment, like really like regional strategic investment to support those communities. And I don't see anything like that in this plan. And then the last piece that we were really looking for is inclusive workforce development. And, and by that, I mean, as I kind of alluded to earlier, the people who work in energy sector in Canada, um, both in terms of people being affected by transition, but also like in the growth industries, like we're going to be creating a huge number of skilled trades jobs, especially in the building trades in the coming decades, because we've got to like retrofit a ton of buildings, build all this green infrastructure, install all these solar panels and stuff. It's going to create a ton of jobs. And that's a good thing. Uh, but the people who are training for those jobs right now are, are overwhelmingly, again, you know, white Canadian born men, which is not a problem in itself. And I'll say that as, as a white Canadian born man, you know, <laughs> they, they deserve jobs too, but that can't be it. Like we need to do a way better job of, of not just recruiting, but appealing to other historically marginalized groups, because there's, there's so much evidence that, that we're just doing, we do a terrible job in both the training system and then in the workplace of making those kinds of careers you know, accessible and appealing to other kinds of people. And it's, it's really disappointing. And governments haven't thought well enough about how to solve it, probably because they're not actually listening to those communities. <laughs> but just like a really a couple of just, you know, quick issues off the top, for example, like we know that statistically, like not only are, for example, like, you know, women, racialized people, immigrants less likely to go into that field in terms of training. They're less likely to complete training. And when they do, they're less likely to get jobs. And a lot of the issues when you talk to those workers are cultural. It's not financial. And so in Ontario, for example, we have programs that make it if, you know, if you're a, if you're a woman or you're indigenous, you're, you may be eligible for programs that basically pay for like the entire cost of your education in the trades. But that's not the barrier. <laughs> like, yeah, sure, that that helps. But the barrier is like if you live in a remote indigenous community being told like, OK, you got to, you know, move to Toronto, get your training for a few years and then, you know, work here. And it's like, no, like we need, we need to actually make training like not only culturally appropriate, but like available to different communities. Anyway, it's a bit of a tangent, but just this training issue is, is really complicated. And not only is diversifying that workforce important because it's kind of the right thing to do from an equity perspective. But I also mentioned earlier, like we have these looming skill shortages in a lot of key sectors and there just aren't enough Canadian born white men to do all that, to do all those jobs. So for the, for the private sector too, and for government, there's a very clear economic incentive to, to train a more diverse workforce. So anyway, it's kind of a roundabout way of saying we were looking for inclusive workforce development. The sustainable jobs plan mentions these issues, but doesn't really put in place a clear plan for, for addressing them. Yeah, that's really interesting. You mentioned uh, just the skills shortage. I, we on the show uh, earlier, earlier last year, I guess it was. We had a guest named Jordan Cooey who uh, sits on the board of Iron Earth, but is also a a housing manager for for a reservation um, on uh, out in BC. And he was like, "I got into this because I need people to hire." Like his his incentive, he, what he came into so the Iron Earth's work around just transition work was specifically because he needed more skilled tradespeople to come and help him build housing. Like that was what he needed. And he was like coming to this being like, this is what, this is exactly what I need. I need more people to help me build housing. Like I have projects. What I don't have are, is labor. And it's so mm -hmm. fascinating that like, we so often talk about jobs as if they're almost this sort of scarcity. Whereas more often than not, in many of these sectors right now, there's more jobs than there are people. 
And so we yep. have to find some way to to get people trained up and being able to do them or else we're sort of sitting on the sidelines waiting. And by all means, we know we can't wait to build more housing like anywhere in this country needs more housing. And so the idea that we don't have enough to do that really can like that's where you get sort of these like, you know, then you get ha then then housing is too expensive because we don't have enough people to be able to get trained. And you get these like sort of vicious cycles. Yeah, well, and it's and it's like I mean, the housing one is such a clear example of this where it's like we have one problem, which is we need way more housing. And then we have another problem, which is like, we need good jobs for people. Why can we not, <laughs> why can we not make that connection? And this is where, I mean, this is where you know, government, government matters, right? Because this is again, a case of we're like, well, surely the market will solve it because they'll raise wages and that'll attract more workers and whatever. And um, not only is that not happening because of cultural and other barriers, but this is just a huge drain on just kind of our emissions reduction uh, goals on solving all these kinds of social problems and training people for for good work it's just uh this is where we need government to step up some things are better done by government and it it is a thing that i think has been sort of drilled out of the collective understandings brains in the last like 40 years that there are legitimately many things that we need the government to do and we can't just solve by incentivizing it's with air quotes everybody can't see it because it's radio uh, <laughs> uh private industry right like you could just yeah. build more housing. Well, and it's again, I mean, of course, the, the in short of, you know, a total economic revolution, like the private sector has an important role to play for sure. But it's just the kind of dependence on the private sector to lead. It just doesn't make sense. And it's not working. Um, and the training is a good example of that, because, you know, we need we need people in 10 years from now, which means we need to start training apprentices today. And only like you know, government or some kind of coordinating body can can think about that long term and make those connections so that we have the workforce available when we need it. Um, that's that's the problem. I mean, it just come back again, come back to the housing thing. Like we were in a housing crisis a year ago, but we're also in a housing boom because there was all this money, right? And all these developers are building housing all over the place. Now this winter, prices of housing are crashing and housing development has also stopped. You know, builders aren't building housing anymore because they're like, well, it's not profitable enough. And like, that's just ridiculous. We still need the housing. So it's like government should be saying, like, we've got all this capacity. Let's build more houses now. It doesn't really matter what the sale price is of that house. You know, people need somewhere to live. So anyway, it just comes back to the idea of like government doesn't have to do everything, but it does have to play a coordinating role. It does have to kind of spot those market failures and fix them proactively. Because, you know, so much of what you do is to think uh, and research policy and to, and to sort of dive into that world. Those people like, like, honestly, like I probably read more policy than most people and, but in by listeners are probably similar, but still we're not, you know, we're not looking at as much as, as deeply as you are. I'm curious if you can sort of give us tips or thoughts on like what kind of questions or ways of thinking should people apply when trying to sort of evaluate these federal proposals? Because like, as you mentioned at the top of this interview, they usually hit all of the things. You know, usually they're like, yeah, we are going to do all of these things. We did get a price on carbon. We did do this other thing. And yet then there's the sort of, which makes it kind of hard for environmentalists to sort of come back and say, this is missing. And, and we've seen here in the city of Toronto, time and time again, the plan that they've put it forward is good, but they just don't fund it enough. And so you get this constant difficulty of communication with sort of the people paying less attention because it's like, yes, they have are doing all the things, but they're doing it too slowly or they or they have a plan to do it, but there's no money. Like, I'm curious if you can walk us through how you would think through 
you know, is this good legislation or not? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big question, but it's an important one, right? Is like, how do you just parse all this stuff? And it's true. Reading the introduction to any government policy is not going to be very helpful. They're very good communicators. They know to say the right things first, and then they bury the stuff that's going to be controversial. I mean, this plan was released like a Friday afternoon before a long weekend. Like they didn't want anyone to read it. Um, the the couple things I would say, especially in the climate context, the kind of first thing I look for is, does this actually tackle fossil fuels? And there is, there is of course, nuance to that. Like fossil fuels are not 100% of our climate crisis, but they're most of it. And at the end of the day, no matter what else you do on climate, if you're not tackling fossil fuels, both on the con- production side and the consumption side, it's not, a, it's not a legitimate or it's certainly not a sufficient climate strategy. So that's one that that's the kind of immediate lens I apply to any climate policy in Canada. Um, what are you doing about fossil fuels? Because it's easy to say like, oh, look, we built one wind farm here and at the same time invested however many dollars, maybe one and a half billion dollars a year in carbon capture and storage for the oil sands, <laughs> for example. So that's the first thing I look for. It's just right, right to the fossil fuels piece is really important. And tied to that is uh, a focus on uh, just think about like absolute outcomes. So it's really common for governments to talk about kind of relative measures of progress. So they're like, you know, our emissions intensity improved by 5% or whatever. And that's not a bad thing. Sure, we want to improve emissions intensity. But what actually matters from a climate perspective is a reduction in total emissions. Are we actually producing fewer greenhouse gas emissions than before? If not, whatever your plan is, isn't working or it's not, it's not good enough. So again, that's related to the fossil fuel thing, but it's, it's about you know, kind of trying to look a little bit past whatever the title is or the like head, headings are in a policy and, and ask, like, what are you actually doing to reduce emissions in real terms? That's, that's just the most important question, I think, from a climate perspective. And it, it, it's, uh, I mean, I think about, I think often about the common criticism of the former environment minister, Catherine McKenna, and anytime she talk about how big a problem climate change is, everyone say, well, you bought a pipeline. Uh, and that's, I mean, I think it's maybe a little bit overdone. I think Catherine McKenna's actually, especially in recent years, become quite a good leader on a lot of these issues, but the point still stands, you know, a government that is buying oil pipelines is not being honest about its, its climate ambitions. So that's, you just really can't emphasize that point enough. Um, and then the only other piece I would add for a, a plan like this is, you know, are you actually putting people first or are you actually you know let listening to people letting people lead letting people determine their own economic futures and that's that's kind of like can be harder to assess because it's not always easy to see in a government policy how that might be possible but there's a big difference between like a policy that says like we're going to create x gdp uh, or even like we're going to get like you know a net job creation and a word like net hides all of the job loss in there. Um, but just like saying, like, we're going to actually talk to communities, listen to communities, let communities develop their own paths forward. Um, that that kind of thing is really important. And as we talked about, I do see a lot of that in this plan. Um, but it remains to be seen just how genuinely um, the government listens to that advice. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so if folks... Uh want to sort of 
get involved in sort of pushing for this legislation to be better? Um, is, do you have sort of suggested how they can do that? And then also how can folks more stay, stay, stay informed more generally uh, about the work that you do at the CCPA? Yeah. So the, um, the, the draft legislation is expected this summer. We think it's been delayed because they don't want to put it out before the Alberta election. <laughs> That's our best best guess. But once that legislation is public, it'll be opportunities for people to weigh in. There'll be public consultations on that. Um, but I think in general, I mean, it's worth looking at the plan. It's not super long. This is just called Sustainable Jobs Plan. It has 10 points. And it's just worth just like skim those points and be like, is there one of these things I could focus on that would actually be useful that I think I could make a difference on or I want to learn more about uh, is a good way to kind of engage with this plan. And that's, you know, I'm going to be trying to keep an all 10 of them moving forward and we'll see how that goes. Um, in terms of, you know, you can absolutely follow along with what, what we're doing at the CCPA. We're at, at policyalternatives.ca. I'm on Twitter uh, at HadrianMK. And I also just launched the, a newsletter called Shift Storm, which is all about work and climate issues. So absolutely check that out. And you can find a link uh, on my Twitter and, and also on our website. Thank you so much. This has been Hadrian Mertens Kirkwood, a senior researcher at the Canadian Center for Policy, Policy Alternatives. Yeah. Any last thoughts? Uh, yeah, thanks. Well, I just want to point out one thing that's mentioned in the plan we didn't get into a lot of depth on is Indigenous-led climate solutions. And these are just, this is the best. When you have, you have Indigenous communities who build their own you know, energy infrastructure, it is such a win-win-win solution in terms of reconciliation, decarbonization, economic development. And we should be supporting Indigenous communities you know, solving climate change in their own way.